Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, fresh from sending November's prospect away to the presses, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the writer Will Self, the author Rachel Sharby, and down the line from the US we've got the Professor of English and NPR broadcaster Diane Roberts. A warm welcome to you all. Now, today we'll be discussing politics British, politics American, and love. And since the greatest of these three is love, that is where we shall begin. But Will, if I'm uh, reading you right, um, you're out to demolish it, even though, as you tell us, you've had the thrill of being in love yourself some six times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it didn't last long. That's the point. Uh, I think romantic love is a kind of uh, hitman. The contract is to get you into a monogamous relationship. And I actually think that damages. I'm not against monogamous relationships. I don't actually say anything in the piece that falls one way or the other on, you know, monogamy, polyandry, polygamy, whatever you want to do. Uh, That's not really the point. I think that the kind of romantic illusion actually poisons our relationships. And more particularly, I think it makes us very unforgiving towards ourselves. It becomes a bit like every other aspect of status in our culture. You've got to have the high status job. You've got to have the material possessions. And you have to have the great love affair. Uh, And I think that, you know, most people don't have great love affairs in their lives. and, And they torment themselves with it. And I'm out to make people happier, not sadder. (laughs) Diane, now uh, you're a professor of English among your many other talents and you'll have read quite a lot of love stories, I imagine, in your um, time. Therefore, do you think um, Will's being a misery gut? No, I don't. I mean, I I really do like that phrase about uh, romantic love being the hitman of monogamy. I sort of imagine Eros with uh, an AK-47 and black shades. But um, the the essay made perfect sense to me, especially the part about being in love with a dog. I mean, who wouldn't be in love with a dog? This is one of Will's six. Yes, that's one of the six, which I thought was was platonic. Actually, I I have to confess that I said six just to make myself appear more romantic than I am. I don't (laughs) think it's really that high. No, but I mean, look, that would be, since you started with uh, quoting, of course, you know, the famous passage from, as Donald Trump would say, two Corinthians, um, (laughs) which was about caritas, you know, the, the love that transcends the physical um, I think the dog was was perfect, but we, I think novelists have been warning us about this forever 
I mean, love is damaging. Uh, it can be soul destroying. Of course, it's soul uplifting as well. But um, I think that you have but to read about how damaging it can be in, say, Jane Eyre or Middlemarch or whatever. Um, and um, perhaps take it as a cautionary tale. Maybe we're becoming more you know, like they were before we invented romantic love and seeing uh, marriage as some kind of companionship contract or even a property contract or maybe both. Sounds a bit dismal, Rachel, doesn't it? Um, I don't know. Actually, I didn't I didn't think that it was depressing, um, Will Self's essay. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very realistic. And I, I think it's sort of attempting to challenge this ideal that everyone torments themselves with, mm. whether they're in a relationship or not, the idea that there is such a thing as the perfect relationship. And I'm going to bring the lowbrow into it a little bit. You're going to start sneering at me, maybe, Will, because the whole thing with when Brangelina split and mm. basically the internet had its heart broken. You know, it was this idea that love is dead because if they can't make it, who can make it? Which seemed like a deluded premise to begin with, but it also sort of tapped into this idea that that it should be enduring, that it should last forever, that if it doesn't, there's something wrong with it, mm. um, which I think is is changing as a perspective. And I, I really liked um, the way you explored that. So you've got okay. this well, sense that... Um, uh, the focus obviously is on people, I think, seeing their own romantic love as something that's going to redeem them in a kind of almost religious way. Mm. But but maybe then it extends to other people's relationships, just knowing that there's other relationships out there is... Well, I think that's what keeps it floating. I mean, that's the point about Brangelina, and I refer in the essay to the idea that, that there are kind of, just like the idea in, in uh, the Talmud of mm. the Sadiq Kim Nagaran, that yeah. there are these 36 unrequited lovers <laughs> in the world whose, whose great love, precisely because it's unrequited, it can never, like Brangelina, fall apart. But nonetheless, even unrequited love can conform to this fantastic romantic paradigm, which is really, I mean, to call it religious is perhaps not quite right. It's spiritual. It's a mm. spiritual ideology. It's very powerful. And, and the, where it's come to roost most recently, and I didn't really investigate this in, in the essay because of lack of space, um, is, in, is in the psi professions, the talking cures, and, and specifically in this idea, which I think reinforces it very much, that everybody's life is some sort of story. It has a narrative arc, and, and romanticism fits very well into that idea, which I personally think is utter tosh. And does this sort of the same kind of thing as when people say they want to get closure on something? Is yeah, that- it is. Closure is part of, you know, the, 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 the life is a three-act problem. It's not. It's just, you know, if you're forgiving the, the podcast, shit happens. Or as Macmillan would have put it, events, dear boy, events. You know, I mean, it's kind of... Uh, and I think a lot of people condemn themselves because their life doesn't seem to have a narrative arc, but it's a procrustean task, sort of stretching your life to conform to these uh, artificial I think, paradigms. I think in a way, if anything, social media is making us more conformist mm. because it's making us, you know, create this false narrative of an ideal that nobody has. Um, a friend of mine calls it fake book, you know, because it is just pure narrative construct Mm. Um, and then of course everybody else compares themselves to you know to to that ideal and how far they've fallen short from it so if anything it's making us all conform to this fiction 
Well, I think there's two um, aspects to that, one of which I touch upon in the essay, which is I think, you know, I mean, this again is a rather radical view of my own. I don't think people are very unique. I think mm. we're, we're quite... Are we sim- not precious snowflakes? No, I think, <gasps> I think we're very similar to each other, and I think social media tends to expose that. Yeah. So the, the narrative impulse really gets to work to keep us differentiated from this great mass of similarity that we're engaging with. And I, and I think the other problem with contemporary social media is that um, it, it, it de-physicalizes us. I mean, the stats on the noughties generation are that they're just not getting enough, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly compared to, to, you know, I mean, the fastest increase in, in sexually transmitted diseases is in my, my age group, the over 55s. Woohoo! <laughs> Popular culture has always sold us a, a bill of goods yeah. on uh, romance from yeah. the... Um, well, from the Middle Ages at least onward, you know, where there is this perfect sort of love and then you'll be happy. And Or in Jane Austen, then they get married and one assumes they're happy. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're miserable. Not much they could do about it. If Elizabeth decided that Mr. Darcy was just such a complete prig, she couldn't take it anymore. Where's she going to go? So, you know, we're sort of stuck with this. Our own movies... Um, always, you know, end with the kiss and the promise of happily ever after. And uh, grown people know that that's not, sadly, that's not how it works. I mean, unless you just stay drugged up a lot, and then maybe it does work like that. But but aren't we bound to kind of um, try and tell ourselves stories about, to try and make sense of what otherwise is just random and endless and shapeless? Uh, I think there's there's a shaping. You can you can shape things. You can try and make under, understand what's happened in your emotional life. But what I see around me far too often is people, often in middle age, who've who've got a story about what they are in love, and that story defeats them, and it also goads them into ever more fantastical romanticism. At the same time, it creates this kind of very negative dialectic. I think. I mean, one of the, one of the most uh, you know, happiest and most equable men we've ever had described to us was David Hume, and he certainly didn't believe that life was any kind of narrative at all. <laughs> on now to um, Rachel's uh, essay, which is one of several in our new issue on the plight of progressive British politics after Jeremy Corbyn's re-election as leader at the Labour conference. Uh, the members were even more firmly behind Corbyn than last time around, many being convinced that they're now building a real people's party. But the MPs are despairing, fearing that Labour's love of the electorate is, well, unrequited. Rachel, what do you think? Um, it was conference season, so we've just had the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. And what, what was very interesting about that was the conference itself felt quite flat. You know, a lot of the sort of PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, were quite sort of depressed and experienced uh, Jeremy Corbyn's second win as leader as some kind of bereavement the conference itself felt a little bit flat and sad, but the events down the road where uh, the Jeremy Corbyn supporting grassroots movement Momentum Mm. was organising, it would be impossible to miss the sort of energy and the optimism that was present in that building. And indeed, a lot of sort of previously cynical or, you know, doubtful uh, politicians and pundits alike found themselves engaged with this process and then reported on it accordingly, saying, actually, you know, the section of the party that does have ideas and is thinking in terms of what now 
it is there in the in the movement that supported Jeremy Corbyn. So I thought, you know, it was really interesting to see that happen. And I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly experience it as, you know, I'm quite cynical. So I tend to mm. quite often think that optimism is delusional. But in this case, I really, I really don't think anybody is or many people are being very sort of rosy eyed about it. I do think they're, they're very practical about the challenges ahead for the progressive left. Um, what needs to be done um, to get the Labour Party sort of back in force as a, as a credible party? I mean, what the MPs will say, Will, is that um, this isn't a kind of strategy for trying to win power. It is instead something closer to a religious faith, if you like, that people have got behind Corbyn and enough of them can get behind him and, and that will carry the day. The movement will carry the day irrespective of all the people who will not are not and never will be in the movement. I think it's more worrying than that. I think it is actually, you know, as many commentators have said, part of the same uh, upsurge in populism that we're seeing throughout the developed world, both on the right and the left. And elsewhere in this month's issue, there's a very good analysis by David Marcand of, of, of how we can look at these axes of, of political movement. I think that those in, on, uh, in the Corbyn faction are still inflected by quite traditional Marxist thinking, uh, and they believe that this is a historical moment in the Marxist sense where they can seize the high ground. I think they are indeed deluded, I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm afraid, quite deluded. And there's a, there's a real mismatch between Corbyn's rhetoric and thinking about how you both gain and exercise power in the political system we actually have. Well, we're agreed, we're in a bit of a constitutional crisis. Many of our, our traditional, uh, you know, the traditional institutions of our representative democracy are under question, but I don't really see anything coming from the Corbynistas that, uh, you know, produces substantive thinking on how we're going to change that. What I see is a lot of rhetoric and what I see is, frankly, delusion because uh, you, you, you uh, get into number 10 Downing Street as a socialist and you'll be able to hear the capital disappearing out of the city of London audibly. It will be a great and mighty tide. And, and, and I would have much more sympathy for those on, on the left of the Labour Party and the Corbyn faction if they were honest about that. If they said, yeah, this is what we want to do and it's going to be like North Korea around here for about 25 years. You good with that, electorate? Let's go with it. <laughs> Rachel, you've got to be giving you a chance to come back before we bring in Diane. I mean, I was just sort of listening to the tail end of that and, you know, we're witnessing a Conservative Party that, you know, has really panicked its natural constituency, i.e. capital, uh, in a very different way. So it's interesting that you should say that. But I, I just I just think, um, you know, uh, we, are, we are in very changed political times. We've got a lot of things wrong. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Um, the difference is the difference is that I'm prepared to give it a chance that I actually do see those ideas uh, connecting and engaging. I don't see rhetoric. I didn't see much rhetoric uh, at the Momentum event. I saw a lot of very practical questions. Very. Well, I mean, the, the only major economic proposal that John McConnell and and Corbyn have made is totally unworkable. I mean, well, it simply has no possible. Uh, you, you know, so that is, but that is well, this view. is this that massive is... new uh, state investment bank, mm. and, and they think that they're somehow they've got some wiggle room between the fact that we have negative interest rates and QE is not going to work anymore. They don't. I mean, 
you know, why don't they just say they'd like a socialist revolution? But I'm again, sure that's well, really going to be yeah. do well on the hustings. <laughs> some things that were thought as, as unthinkable not very long ago have become thinkable, quantitative easing amongst them. You know, if you'd said 10 years ago, you know, what times get hard, we'll just print a load of money. No, no, no. People have always printed money. That's, that's nonsense, Tom. That's always gone on. But it was <laughs> just that when Labour does it, it's socialism and capital runs away, apparently, even though it's exactly the same thing. Look, I mean, their economic plan has been devised, part devised and definitely approved by most respected, not lunatic and certainly not hard left economists. Um, it, it's, it's a way of thinking that you don't embrace. That doesn't make it wrong. It just means that you don't embrace no, 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 it. No, 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 no. These are, these are hardline facts. Either you're part of the increasingly globalised and, and admittedly neoliberal economy with all the consequences for our Gini coefficient and all of that stuff. I agree. It's a shitty state of affairs. I'm not saying I'm happy with that. I'm just saying that it's an extremely fragile state of affairs and the way the economy works at the moment. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, remember your history. When governments in Latin America tried to buck the IMF to 20 years ago, they were cleaned out on the markets. You know, whenever a Labour government takes power in this country, capital sucks out of the place like nobody's business. If Corbyn reaches power, there'll be nothing left in the till at all. Let's just bring in Diane, because there's a strong parallel, isn't there, with uh, Bernie Sanders? Well, yes, and actually that's my question to Rachel. Um, I am one of those who don't understand... Jeremy Corbyn's appeal. I do understand the appeal of his politics, which I largely, I mean, the sentiments, the idea of collectivism and opportunity from the bottom up rather than the top down, I embrace. But is it him or is it the ideas of momentum? Because it looks to me an awful lot like momentum is, is Jeremy Corbyn's fan club the way that Bernie Sanders supporters loved Bernie Sanders himself. And um, a lot of whom are now rather huffily saying that they'll vote for somebody other than Hillary Clinton. I don't think they're a fan club. And I don't think anybody really has, or I don't think many people really has uh, Corbyn on a pedestal. I think there is a degree to which some of his appeal is to do with him being perceived as authentic. So in the same way as with Bernie Sanders, these people have easily Googleable track records that have shown a consistency in politics, which in an age where we perceive politicians as corrupt and, you know, not trustworthy, that actually counts for a lot, being credible and being authentic. I think that's, that's fair uh, enough. Authenticity is in short supply on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, is it you know, I'm sitting on an authentic chair, but I don't want it to be prime minister. <laughs> so then the rest of his appeal is political. Uh, right. Um, you know, the, that's, I think, another thing I don't quite understand because much as, I mean, I was a student in Britain uh, in the dreaded Thatcherite 80s. And, you know, we were all for, I know, shock horror. Um, I remember those days. So was I. Yeah, Maggie, 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 out, 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 I believe is what we said in the pub of an evening. But um, we, um, you know, yeah, we were all for renationalizing the railroads and renationalizing everything. And during the miners' strike, you know, 
there we all were packing boxed lunches to send to the north, etc. I cannot for the life of me to echo something Will said, figure out how that works in an economy where you've got investment, not just in Britain, but all across the board. And uh, it didn't work in Venezuela. Let's put it that way. Venezuelan people are now starving because of some of these policies. Isn't there a a case? I mean, people are saying that Theresa May now is stepping away from neoliberalism in various ways. Certainly tonally she is, and tone can matter and turn into... No, I think it's a tactic. I think she's a clever tactician. I mean, she's beating the bigotry drum as well, isn't she? I mean, this stuff about... You know, foreign students and and firm. I mean, it, 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 I think my hunch is that this is quite tactical on May's part. I think she'll likely call an early election in mm. the new year. She needs a bigger mandate, and she wants them all out and in the box. But I don't think she's naturally a bigot, though she's sounding bigoted. And nor do I naturally think that she's uh, has the purpose or the acumen, frankly, to redirect a major economic change. <laughs> I don't get that feeling from her either. I think she's going to be hoisted by her own petard as well and is unleashing forces she doesn't understand. Well, if Theresa May's word is good, a big if, then um, Will's suggestion there that she'll call an early election isn't right. She said that there won't be an election for four years. Across the Atlantic, however, we are entering the final stages of the presidential race. Now, Diane, we'll come on to your own piece uh, in a moment. But first of all, we just need a word on what's been going on over there because all the punters, including Sam Tannenhouse, who's writing for us, are saying that it's uh, unprecedented. Do you think it is? Almost. We're, um, to echo Will's essay again, we're very good at forgetting. Um, This sort of thing happened in the 1820s with the election of Andrew Jackson, who was a loud, brash, um, studiedly rough-hewn populist, who was also quite rich and owned slaves and a large plantation, but his followers liked him because he was authentic. Boy, was he ever. And um, he he's, was rather Trumpian in his ways, dodgy dealings, um, very manly guy who liked to point out just how manly he was on an hourly basis. So it is an unprecedented. We've never had anything quite like Trump, though. I mean, as Trumpy-ish as Trump or as Trumpery as Trump, however you <laughs> want to put it. I think Trumpery is good, but nobody knows what that means in America for some reason. Well, we, uh, we, we use that word just fatically, let alone substantively. <laughs> <laughs> it's very but, Trumpery in here today. <laughs> well, it's it's Trumpery all over. Um, he is Trump is is possibly um, those of us on the left are worried about saying this out loud, but he looks like he's. Um, kind of setting himself on fire. He evidently hasn't paid the income tax in 18 years, mm. perfectly legally, but it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. Um, he may have violated the embargo on trade with Cuba, and he got in a Twitter spat with Miss Universe. Now, why you'd get in a Twitter spat at 3 a.m. with Miss Universe is beyond me. But meanwhile, Hillary Clinton is kind of sitting back and trying not to smile like the Cheshire Cat. Uh, There's another debate Sunday night and then another one after that. And that might change things. We don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody's figured anything out about this election because it's so bizarre. 
Yeah, but uh, do, can I just are, break in there? Sure. Can I just ask you one thing, Diane, because you are on the yeah. ground there. And I, I mean, I have my, actually, I, I'm American myself, so I should intuit more of this, but I'm here, <laughs> so I can't. Um, but, it, you know, what happened over here, and I'm not saying, I, I may not have heard Theresa say that about not calling an election, but I, I'm, I'm on a roll because I did call Brexit mm. well in advance of the Brexit. Really? Wow, okay. Yeah, because what I could tell here was that not even the betters, the, the, the bookmakers, and certainly not the opinion polls, they didn't understand that the people who were going to come out and vote weren't on their radar and, mm. and never had been. Mm. Now, is there a possibility that that's the case with you, that there are people who are going to come out of the backwoods, and since we're on a prospect podcast, that can be as derogatory as I like, mm. dragging their knuckles and put across or, a, or you know, punch out a chad on Trump's behalf? Do you think that could happen, Diane? I think it could. Mm. And I do that too. Is what I live in hourly terror <laughs> of because I think that there are so, all these pissed off white people. I mean, I've never seen so many angry white people in my life. And they are mostly white people. They look just like me. I mean, I'm the whitest person anyone's ever seen. But uh, they are so angry because they perceive. I think this is largely perception and not reality. But they perceive everybody else, meaning uh, people of color, women who don't count as full white people, apparently, uh, gays, any minority you want to think of as getting something they're not getting. And what they really mean is they're not completely and unquestioningly in charge anymore. There was a time when being white was, in fact, still is a great privilege. You don't realize it when you're white because you don't know what it's like to be anything else. But they miss the America where being white was supposedly normal and everybody else was different. And now we're told we're all different. We're all uh, an ethnicity. Whiteness was not an ethnicity before. Now it is. This is unsettling to them. Trump is telling them they're right to feel this way. I see. Um, Rachel, as far as you're concerned, is he obviously worse than, say, George W.? Yeah, he's very obviously worse than than George W. in many ways. He's much more extreme, and it and it came up in your essay as well, Diane, which was which was I really enjoyed and which was fascinating. Thank you. Um, but this idea of I should just butt in and explain that um, uh, Diane's piece is a, is a review of a book called The Hillbilly Elegy by uh, J. D. Vance, isn't it? Looking back at, um, at some kind of uh, rundown communities in I think Kentucky. Well, Kentucky and and Ohio, which is very near to Kentucky, it's about the sort of middle bit Appalachia in America, which is a very large area in terms of size. But there's been a lot of discussion around the sort, you know, the sort of white working class, or as Trump calls them, a poorly educated working class, and and you know, because everything is about Britain ultimately. There is a crossover in the kind of conversations that we're having about Brexit as well, where there's this tendency to kind of blame an uneducated mass. Um, whereas, whereas the reality is that, you know, in the case of the Brexit vote, it wasn't necessarily the white working class what won it. Um, it was much more across the board. It, it went into the middle class and it wasn't really predicated so much on class as 
attitude as having conservative small c attitudes not progressive attitudes less i mean why do you why do you tarnish our small c conservatives with that brush a small c conservative response socially conservative maybe socially conservative because a conservative response was to vote stay so now now i've clarified that socially conservative let me say i think it is actually all about social class and not always economic class. Trump supporters tend to be, on average, um, the New York Times says this, and I believe it, uh, their average income is about $60,000, $70,000 a year. That's pretty solidly middle class. Mm. However, they are not university educated. I mean, the, the thing that nobody likes to talk about in this country is our class system, which is stranger and subtler than the British class system, which I found relatively easy to navigate. <laughs> Having grown up in the American South where, um, you know, you can you can become a social pariah by putting dark meat in your chicken salad. So, you know, <laughs> lots of nuances to us that are hard to see. But an elite in America apparently now means you can be an elite. Apparently, I'm an elite. I was told this the other day in a nice piece of hate mail. Um, it means educated and, you know, snooty about it and glad to be educated, you know, believing in weird things like climate change and evolution. That's an elite position. Mm. You know, so this is a kind of populism that is, I think, quite complex. And uh, J.D. Vance, an interesting guy, very young guy, in his early 30s, um, he's reaching for something. I don't think he quite makes it because he can't resolve in his own mind whether, um, you know, big government is never a good thing for uh, spreading equality of opportunity and, you know, we should all pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or if America actually has an obligation to people who live in these these often desperate communities devastated by the loss of mining jobs and manufacturing jobs and not really um, given any kind of push or a hand up or anything by um, American, you know, the powerful in America to um, sort of show them they could do something else. But just very, I don't think, very sorry, briefly, what, what, that lots of these communities he's talking about growing up there 25 years ago or whatever, and they were already suffering. Why do you think it's now that this is kind of finding political expression, if that's what Trump is? I think it has found political expression before. I think that George W. Bush voters would have identified themselves very much this way. Um, these are people for whom, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that the planet is here for us to exploit. And these were people who worked in extractive industries, gas, coal, you know, oil, that kind of thing, mm. uh, and favored those who worked in those industries. And um, I, I think it, it, it was just quieter because weirdly now, though, I mean, I, God knows, I was in Florida during the 2000 presidential election debacle. Hanging um, chads. Hang, yeah, that we have no chads anymore, thank God. We, we probably have something else, though. Um, and George W. Bush just appeared to be, at that time, a bit of a buffoon. You know, he now sort of looks like, I don't know, a statesman 
comparatively, <laughs> even though he has an odd habit of dancing at funerals. But that's, you know, he's an exuberant little fellow. So fine. I mean, I'd take him over Trump any day. You you hear the voice of the desperate well, American lefty here. Of course, Diane, what people on this side of the pond probably never knew about George Bush was that he was old East Coast elite, that the Texan shtick was just that. And oh, God. He should have known it, seeing as his dad was the president. He couldn't really disclose No, no, but, but it was dad who went down to Texas. They're, they're, He's they're Boston. three people who were on the damn Mayflower. Mm. They're as grand as you can get in America. They really are. This thing, it often comes back to kind of populism, though. and We're, we're all uneasy with populism, and yet you should be popular if you want to be in charge in a democracy, shouldn't you, Rachel? I'm not uneasy with populism. I'm very easy with left-wing populism. Um, And I think that, you know, that's something that we um, haven't really explored. When you look at what it is that's fueled um, the rise of progressive left across Europe, you know, Syriza, Podemos, they're very unashamedly populist. I just think that the left-wing hasn't really found a way, perhaps in the States as much as in the UK, to um, embrace that and harness it. Well, the clock is ticking and I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on Headspace this month. My thanks to Will Self, to Diane Roberts and to Rachel Sharby. If you've enjoyed this, then you will adore the November edition of Prospect magazine, which, alongside these fantastic contributors, features the Archbishop of Canterbury, Shami Chakrabarti and the no-love-lost relationship between Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin. That's in the shops next week. But of course you can't wait, so you can do even better by going to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hitting subscribe. Until next month, my name's Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.